He's involved in a number of businesses. He's a great role model. Telling it like it is. Giving you both sides of the story. This is Cats at Night. Great American, a great New Yorker. Now, here's John Katsimatidis. This is Cats at Night. John Katsimatidis here in the 5 o'clock show. Wow, the number one show in New York and the, and the entire East Coast. And uh, we have a full house today. Well, we, it must be Wednesday. It's not Friday. We have no Republicans on Friday. We have three common-sense Republicans and only one common-sense Democrat. Judge Weinberg, the you think you are, can handle? The odds are unfair. I feel very can sad you handle for it? all these guys. I, and, you win. Well, among the common-sense Republicans, we have uh, Congressman Peter King, um, Chief, Chief of Staff, uh, <laughs> Uh, Tony Carbonetti. John, the record will reflect I did work one Friday in early May. That's All right. it. I'm I done for the year. I wrote it down. And the <laughs> borough president of uh, Staten Island, the great island of Staten Island, uh, Vito Fasella. How are you, Vito? I'm doing great, John. Thanks to be with all of you, and this with the exception is a, of Peter. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is a TriCast. Uh, we're broadcasting from WABC uh, 770 uh, Studios, and uh, we also have uh, AM 970 The Answer and WLIR. Who's the lady over there? And my sidekick. My sidekick on my right. It's Ghostface and, Killer uh, to you. We, we have Lydia Serrani. <laughs> Lydia, we have a great show today, don't we? Yes, we do. And I was making a reference to uh, Wu-Tang Clan. We just met one of the members upstairs, so that was interesting. But we have well, a great... Tell everybody what's his name. Ghost, Ghostface Killer. Go, does anybody know Cream Method Man? M-A-T-H-O-D, man. You know that song? No? Keep saying. We want you to keep saying. <laughs> Cream. Okay. Anyway, so we have uh, former police commissioner Bill Bratton. We will also be speaking with General David Petraeus, Paul Lounces. So, of course, talk about about inflation, Hank Schenkoff about New York politics. Also, Ernie Prayot, he's the former attorney general for Pennsylvania, the latest on the Pennsylvania Senate race. And first on the line, though, we have Andrew McCarthy. He's a former assistant U.S. attorney for New York Southern District, also a columnist now for the National Review. Welcome back to Cats at Night, Andrew McCarthy. Great to be with all of you. Tell us what's the hot news of the day, uh, Andrew. I mean, there's so many things going on. Uh, Where do we start? Oh, I don't know. I, I've been watching the uh, Sussman trial for a lot of the day, and I know there's election news that seems to be bigger news, but um, I guess that's what I've been keeping my eye on. It's a little bit more in the weeds than other stuff, but I think it's a pretty interesting story. It's a yeah. basically yeah. And this is PK, and I mean, how is that I case? Think. How is that case going? Because again, I was on the intelligence committee during that whole investigation. There was never anything there, and if they can get Sussman. I think that you know, that could open up to you know, really go higher up and get a lot more people. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. To me, it seems Pete like it's a really strong case that he made a false statement. I mean, just so people understand, it's kind of a narrow crime that's charged within a broad framework. The the broad framework is Durham believes, and I think there's a lot of evidence to this that the Hillary Clinton campaign concocted the Trump-Russia collusion narrative, that they peddled it to the press. They tried to get the FBI kind of enticed into investigating it because that would then allow them to go to the public and say the, the allegations were so serious they were under investigation by the government. So that's, that's the big scheme. And in the middle of this, the guy they sent to the FBI to convey the information is a lawyer uh, who worked for the Clinton campaign named Michael Sussman, who got in the door uh, with the FBI basically by trading on his reputation. He's a former uh, Justice Department national security lawyer, and he had a longstanding relationship with the FBI's then general counsel, Jim Baker. So he texts his pal Jim uh, to say, I got some sensitive information. I just want to share it with the Bureau to help the Bureau I'm not representing any client, not coming to you on behalf of anyone. I just basically being a good American um, and need to share this information. And, of course, he's billing the Trump, the uh, Clinton campaign <laughs> for um, uh, for his time. He's been planning the uh, co- collaborating with the Clinton campaign and putting this. Uh, Andrew, it's Tony together. Carbonetti. Is that exactly Hi. what the text says? They have that text saying, I do not represent anyone. I'm coming in as Joe Citizen. Yeah, you know, that's a great point because um, when when Durham first indicted the case, I was a little worried about the weakness of the proof of that meeting because what we were told is 
It's just a one-on-one -on -one meeting with him and Jim Baker, nobody taking notes. It's not like the normal bureau mm -hmm. meeting because these guys are all pals. They know each other, right? It's not a normal FBI interview where you'd have two agents and one guy taking notes while the other guy ran the questioning. So it sounded like it was going to be one guy's word against the other. But then we come to find out that Durham has this text message. So it's undeniable that Sussman made this representation. That and then he billed the campaign. So he's, he's admitting he was there as their lawyer, or yes, at least he well, told them that. Well, now he, they, have a, they have a defense that actually makes me uh, laugh a little bit. But what they floated out yesterday was somehow the Clinton campaign didn't really want this information to get to the FBI <clears> because they're afraid the Bureau would call the New York Times, who they had also tried to interest in the story, and try to get them not to run it. So what they're now saying is that what Sussman did was in the Bureau's interest, but it wasn't in the Clinton campaign's interest. So you can't really say that he's representing the Clinton campaign. Because the Except New York Times never really... never printed any stories favorable to the Clinton campaign. <laughs> right. Got it. But in the meantime, he's, he's billing his time to the Clinton campaign. And when Durham tries to get information from the Clinton campaign about Sussman, they say you can't have it because of the attorney-client privilege. So, <laughs> so they're admitting it. Yeah, Andy, and the whole purpose underlying this whole Russian collusion narrative was to divert attention from the Hillary Clinton laptops. Isn't that correct? I, well, I think it had a lot to do with her email scandal. Uh, you know, I think that's I, I think that's right. They a lot of what they did with the Trump Russia stuff um, was because she had her own scandal to deal with. But I, you know, I, I've always thought that it was kind of foolish on her part because they built a lot of the Trump Russia narrative. They built around this cockamamie idea that Trump had something to do with the with the the Russian hack of the DNC, and I've always thought that was kind of stupid because. Clinton really didn't have a lot of emails with the DNC, so it wasn't really her thing anyway. But if you were talking about emails, that would constantly remind the public of her email scandal. So I never understood how that how she thought that helped her. I think this made as much sense as breaking into the Watergate Hotel, Andy. <laughs> we know how that worked out. <laughs> so what do you think the timing is on this? I, you know, I think the case is probably going faster than people thought. They picked a jury in one day. Uh, they're pretty well along. They have another interesting witness today, Mark Elias, who was a, another lawyer uh, at Sussman's firm. He was the chief counsel for the for the Clinton campaign. So they have him on the stand. I think they're going to put Baker on the stand tomorrow. The government's case could wrap up in a few days. I don't think they'll be done this week, but probably the – And did Elias get immunity? I'm sorry? Did Elias get immunity? He government. did not get immunity, no. He, he's uh, testifying without immunity so far. But, but I understand the jury is made up of uh, uh, at least three pro-Clinton pe pro yeah. people and pro-whatever. Right. Andy, yeah. I understood from the reports that there were at least three people who were supporters of Obama, Clinton, or, or AOC made uh, political contributions to them. Is that correct? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think that – you you would probably think this was because I certainly thought it was a peculiar way um, to pick a jury. What the judge said, and you know the judge, by the way, we should we should point out here, has longstanding ties to to Clinton world. He used to as a when he got out of law school, he clerked for uh, Judge Adam Mikva, who later became uh, no, no, Bill yeah. Clinton's yeah counsel. he became uh, Bill counsel. Clinton's White House counsel. Uh. And at the same time, the judge himself, whose name is Christopher, uh, they call him Casey Cooper, he went to work for the Clinton Justice Department. Uh, and he's married to, like, the woman who was Eric Holder's uh, advisor at the Justice Department. So, there's, like, there's all these ties that, uh, that go back. So he's got a very um, high threshold before he perceives a conflict of interest, obviously. And, um, you know, when, when these people who are on the jury – obviously have ties to the Democratic Party, he thinks he can make the whole thing go away by just saying, look, Hillary Clinton's not on trial here, and Donald Trump is not on trial here. But in the meantime, the whole trial is about a Democratic dirty trick aimed at the Republican candidate, and Clinton and Trump, even though they're not on trial, there wouldn't be a trial without them. They're, like, essential to the, to the case. 
So I, I just don't think he, he um, took too seriously the, the need to make sure that, the, you know, it, I understand it's very hard in Washington to get people who are unbiased about politics, but I think they really needed to do a better job of that. Andy, any, any word in finding out who gave uh, the leak of uh, Roe versus Wade? So far, no. Um, I think this, you know, the storyline that they tried to peddle that it might have come from a conservative clerk doesn't make any sense to me. And I'm not saying that because I'm a conservative. I'm saying that because, you know, the, the thing that makes a conservative a conservative would kind of cut against doing this. Whereas, um, you know, for progressives, this is this is a kind of a thing that's more acceptable. And you can see that by virtue of how they've reacted to it. You know, where they're they're basically they either don't want to talk about the leaker or they say that it's much more important to have the opinion than not worry about how we got it. Uh, and in the meantime, they're having these demonstrations on the, you know, on the front lawns of the justices. Who's in charge of that investigation right now? Well, yeah, this is, this is a, a big problem. I think the, the investigation is being run by the, uh, the Supreme court's marshal. Um, and, my my problem with that is that yes, the Supreme Court has its own uh, police force, but they're basically for security of the building and the justices. They don't do criminal investigations. You can't really do a competent criminal investigation into this. I don't believe without getting buy-in from the Justice Department and the FBI because they need things like forensic help and you know the usual way that you go about investigating a leak. And the Supreme Court's not in a position to do that. But the Biden administration doesn't seem to be at all interested in pursuing this. So why doesn't the chief justice make a request directly to uh, to the Justice Department, the FBI? I think they might say no. Well, then, but at least make the request. Well, we don't know that they have it. Right. We don't know that. The, we don't know what the communications have been between the chief justice and the and the Justice Department. So I don't want to say it happened or it didn't happen. But, you know, there's obviously. You know, if the FBI was beating the weeds and investigating this, we'd know about it. And, they're, you know, we haven't heard any news of that. And it's Vito Fasola. I'm just curious. Uh, they talk about this as the biggest breach in Supreme Court history. Where is the yep. where, if any, is there precedent for these types of investigations for for such a leak, if any? Uh, there's never been a leak like this that I that I've ever heard of where you got an entire draft opinion uh, which is the majority court opinion, or at least it was as of uh, February. It's probably gone through some, uh, you know, uh, editing since then. Um, I don't think this has ever happened before, which is why, for example, Justice Thomas and uh, some of the public remarks that he made last week said that it was a profound breach of trust that he thinks irreparably damages the court, that it will never be able to function like it did again. Andy McCarthy, we were just to kind of uh, switch subjects. Elon Musk, he came out a short time ago, said he is definitely voting Republican. We were also discussing amongst ourselves whether or not we think that the Twitter buy will actually go through. What do you think? I mean, I don't think there's uh, any chance in hell he's going to buy a Twitter for $44 billion. And the proof he used last night, he tweeted out that article that says half of, of Biden's followers are fake. So he might use that little exclusion there to say, hey, I got to lower the price or I'm out. What do you think? Well, I think I think two things. I think if, if Elon Musk and my mom are with the Republicans, it's going to be a good year. <laughs> I'm to, to say that as far as, you know, what Musk is doing with Twitter, I'm you know, a lot of people have been curious about what his plan for Twitter is, because to my mind, no one's ever been able to monetize that. I, you know, I wonder if it's really worth what he's looking to pay for it. So I guess the fact that they've now raised this issue of all the phantom accounts on mm -hmm. Twitter, and does that affect like what the value of the, of the enterprise is? I heard somebody describe this yesterday as saying that um, Twitter is, is much more about power than it is about money. Like, it, you know, the power over the narrative and particularly the way that it's been used by progressive journalists to drive stories and to and to sort of sculpt the way stories are presented to the public is more valuable than however much it may be worth in, in terms of a monetary proposition. But I'm not, you know, that ain't my neck of the woods, so I'm probably not the best person to ask about that. Andy, I want to ask you, uh, what are your thoughts about the suspension of this Ministry of uh, of Truth? 
the Orwellian gambit <laughs> created by the administration. They say that the woman even, resigned. Even, or, yeah, even Orwell would object to that, right? <laughs> um, well, it's I on think, pause you know, look, now. Just, well, yeah, I mean, sure. It's, it's, it's like a lot of things they do, right? They float these uh, insane ideas, and then they get all kinds of blowback. It reminds me of, uh, you know, Attorney General uh, Garland, having the uh, basically ordering the FBI to go out and investigate parents who were protesting progressive indoctrination in the schools. And then when he gets called on it, he says, well, I didn't really mean that. And like my letter doesn't really mean what it says it means. So, you know, now with this, this thing that's been a complete debacle with the, uh, you know, the lady who sings uh, Mary Poppins, uh, there was a Mary Poppins song, Sound of Music. Yeah, full of crap. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, so you know, I mean, that that thing was a that thing was a disaster from the moment they rolled it out. So I guess the only question is why it took them so many days to to put it on pause. But I, as I heard the press secretary say today, to the extent I was able to make out what what she was saying, um, they're only pausing it, and they they intend to, um, you know, to get it going again. But I'd be surprised if we hear about it again. Andrew McCarthy, thank you so much for coming on, and thank you for. Uh... Uh, keeping your eyes open for America because uh, we need uh, how, how do you how does Superman say it? Truth, Truth, justice, justice and the American, American way. way. <laughs> Amen. All right. Well, God, thank you so much. God bless. Thank you, Andy. And uh, on the line with us uh, is former Attorney General of the state of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is a big swing state in uh, in the United States right now, and a lot of uh, primaries last night. Uh, Ernie Priot. Uh, Ernie, uh, tell us, uh, what the heck happened last night in Pennsylvania? Well, it's uh, too close to call between Dr. Oz and Dave McCormick right now. Oz squeaked ahead at the, the last minute uh, after midnight uh, by about 2,500, 2,600 votes. But then they started counting the mail-in ballots. There we go. Folks. Uh, and that, that, that's where everything is screwed up. Uh, for example, Luzerne County, Wilkes-Barre. Never counted 11,000 mail-in ballots because they didn't have enough personnel, so they started doing it today. Uh, but they only, and the population is only 5,000. I didn't have 11,000. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as you know, it's quite a bit more than that. How many votes did Biden get? Lancaster County, <laughs> Lancaster, Lancaster County uh, had um, uh, 20,000 mail-in ballots that weren't counted because the ID code didn't uh, register with the county machine. So they're counting those by hand. So that's 30,000 mail-ins that are being counted right now. As of a few minutes ago, uh, Oz's lead went from 2,700 uh, to 1,700. Um, and uh, the, the, they'll, they'll, well, I don't know when they're going to finish counting the mail-ins, but uh, the, the uh, Republicans, and bottom line is Republicans came out in droves much bigger numbers than uh, the, uh, the the Democrats, by 100,000. A lot of enthusiasm on the Republican side. Also, registration used to be 800,000-plus for the Democrats, now down to just over 500,000. So the, 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 this is well, They're not counting the dead ones. Election. Pardon? They're not counting the dead ones. Yeah, <laughs> they did that up here. Fifty years ago, they started that practice. It's good to have a little uh, bit, the, Ernie Priot. It's good to have a little bit of humor. I mean, uh, because without humor, we all we, we would all some, go crazy. Let me throw some. Let me, John. Let me throw some serious stuff in here. Go ahead. Go ahead. The big question is, the big question is, how's abortion going to go? How is that going to affect the election? Is it going to trump the uh, the inflation and the recession that everybody predicted we're going to have? The stock market crumbling. Uh, is abortion. <clears throat> going to trump that, and so people will vote in favor of abortion uh, as opposed to in favor of bread and butter, kitchen table economic issues. Ernie, that's what's going to have. That's the big, the big thing in November. Gary, this is Pete King. Uh, you know, the NBC poll showed it only had a one percent difference, and I was talking to a national pollster who just completed a poll. He said it has no impact at all. We'll see. What it yeah, may do is energize more Democrats, but. I, as far as the overall numbers, we'll see. It's a long way to go. But as of now, it did not have the impact yeah, it, that it, they were hoping for. Well, it, it is. It is. But I'm looking at uh, the uh, anecdotal evidence they took in the Scranton Times uh, uh, published today, and virtually every Democrat says 
they were they were if they're leaning Republican, they're going to vote who has ever allowed for abortion, uh, right? Uh, so I'm I'm just giving you a little hint that this and and my daughter is you know the Republican county chair down in Montgomery County, uh, and uh, and she's saying that abortion was a big issue uh, at the polling places mm-hmm. down there. So I don't I, I don't I'm not a believer that the economy trumps. Uh, abortion in this case right now. It may, well, well, Trump supporters should realize Donald Trump, Trump only appointed judges who are going to overrule uh, Roe versus yeah. Wade. They can't complain now. Hey, hey Ernie, this is Vito Fasola. Just a couple of things. I think when, when people continue to pay a hundred over $100 for a gallon yeah. of gas and they can't afford to or they have to make a decision between, say, going out to eat or putting food on the table, if that continues... And people keep, getting shot dead in the streets. And people, that's right, afraid to go on the yeah. subway, etc., and, and there's no response or there's an indifference. Now, people aren't stupid. You know, Peter is one of the most successful politicians around here. He can tell tell you and anybody that people are pretty sophisticated when it comes to analyzing yeah. how they're going to vote. Well, I just have one question, oh. Fernie. Uh, the last 72 hours of the uh, the primary, say Saturday, Sunday, Monday into Tuesday... I'm curious, could you describe sort of what happened on the ground that led to this this close race with so many forces at play? Well, uh, Kathy Barnett came up out of nowhere because she was being pulled up by the people in the, the, the Mastriani, uh, Mastriano camp, who's, who was a way-ahead guy that's the nominee for governor. Uh, and he's a big Trump fan. And then Trump endorsed him uh, three days before the election. So he pulls up with him, uh, um, Barnett, and then the negative started on Barnett, and they drove her numbers down just enough to make this now a competitive race between McCormick and Oz because Oz was up by three percentage points over the weekend, and yet he's now just one-tenth of one percent separating them here on Wednesday night. And Ernie Priat, just to oh, your yeah, point, what you were talking about re- regarding abortion, a logical person like Vito, what you're saying and what you're saying, Congressman King, would say, of course, I don't want to continue paying six dollars possibly per a gallon and, and my electricity prices and everything and crime is spiraling out of control. But we're also talking about the same suburban moms that were upset with Trump for what he tweeted and voted for a guy that basically was hiding out in a basement because they didn't like uh, his rhetoric. And, you know, the common sense choice was Trump. So that's the problem here. I'm, I'm a woman myself and I have a lot of friends and they lean right. But then they're like, oh, but it's my body, my choice. And then that's and they kind of their emotions override the common sense. Well, fortunately, the polling isn't showing that. But again, it's a long way to November. I mean, even NBC, which is certainly not pro-Trump, that it's no impact at all. As you know, John, John, I argued Planned Parenthood versus Casey in the United States Supreme Court back in 92. You had me on last week when we talked about it. Uh, And the decision hasn't been handed down yet. It won't be handed down until June. So as I caution everybody then, let's wait and see what the justices say before we start making lots of uh, jumps to conclusions. Former Attorney General Ernie Priot uh, from Pennsylvania, thank you for giving us an update on the election. On, because so Pennsylvania goes, might go to the whole country. And thank you so much. And we'll catch up with, with you again real soon. And we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to come back with former police commissioner Bill Bratton. And he is mad as hell because the streets are not safe. A common sense recap of the day's biggest stories. It's John Katzimatidis and Cats at Night on 77 WABC. Welcome back to the John Katzimatidis Cats at Night show. While we wait for the former police commissioner, Bill Bratton, to get on the line, I just saw a headline that said two babies have been hospitalized amid the formula shortage because they're being malnourished. And there's a lot of issues, and also a lot of kids have special allergies and they can't find the the right formula. I mean, could you imagine, guys, in 2022, in the greatest country in the world, we'd have mothers that can't feed their children? What do you think, Judge? I think this is absolutely horrific. They had a long time to deal with this issue. They knew about it. They ignored the whistleblower who raised, raised the issue. They should have been planning on this and storing this stuff and producing it for the longest time. It's it's outrageous. No, and it's a, it's a tragedy, right? You have young young mothers, sometimes their first child, <laughs> scrambling, not knowing uh, what to do. You hear horror stories anecdotally, but it's like a third world country. Going into a store, 
and not seeing baby formula, and a lot of folks, as the judge just mentioned, knew that this could happen. When and, you and shut the, down and, that operations, what do you the expect? Drug stores, the drugstores are closing all over the place. You're right. Uh, you know, uh, Walgreens closed. Uh, and that's because they're not closed. safe to do yes, business. Yes, closed. That's, and that's and, where the crime and, situation There's one CVS in one of our neighborhoods where there's a security guard at the front door, and he's letting people in as he inspects them one at a time. And the reaction is always, well, let's not stop. or Let's stop price gouging. They're raising the price of formula. There is no formula. <laughs> doesn't matter what you're going to pay. There are folks, there are now websites out there that help, right. help people track down the availability of formula wherever it may be, and somebody's dropped the ball in a significant way. And to make it political, this would certainly affect suburban moms. Absolutely. About and another yeah. Biden-inflicted crisis, again, because we could have easily lifted those sanctions from the European countries. We could have imported it like Trump did with Operation Warp Speed with the vaccines. He could have did... So many things, and he did absolutely nothing but close down the Keystone Pipeline and raise gas prices and God only knows what else. It was Congresswoman Elise Stefanik was leading a charge on this. If you notice the last few days, they're blaming her for the Buffalo Massacre. I mean, they're getting back, they're using that. Wow. She was really putting the heat on. She went to them in February, said this is going to happen, and she was ignored. And as tragic as the Buffalo Massacre was, we're seeing tragedies unfold all along our streets, specifically right here in New York City. On the line with us right now, we have former NYPD Commissioner Bill Bratton. Commissioner, once again, we saw another child, an 11-year-old girl in the Bronx, lose her life tragically during a shootout, shot in the stomach. What's it going to take for our leaders to wake up and realize that these regressive policies are killing the very people they are claiming to protect? I wish I had an answer for that, but I don't, because uh, as recently as yesterday, when Eric Adams was up in Albany, they were tone deaf to uh, uh, the pleas that he's been making for assistance to change the laws that have created this. As you well know on this show, uh, this uh, crime wave that we're experiencing was created by the politicians in Albany. Uh, It was uh, uh, impacted certainly by uh, coronavirus when it shut down the courts, but it's crime wave was occurring a year before coronavirus began to have impact. Uh, The only way we're going to get out of it is for the politicians in Albany to effectively reform their reforms. And so far, uh, they've been tone deaf uh, to the carnage on our streets. That incident involving that 11-year-old girl, it had many elements that are impacting on the city. You had two knuckleheads riding on an unlicensed moped, we see hundreds of them throughout the city on sidewalks, along the long way, on streets. It's a sign of the total uh, uh, lack of obedience to the laws that the rest of us are expected to uh, conform to. So you get these two knuckleheads riding on a sidewalk, attempting to assassinate several other young men. In the meantime, <coughs> kill this poor innocent girl. It's, it's the disorder that's out of control, uh, where nothing happens to the disorder. And you don't control disorder, you end up with the killings of 11-year-old girls on the streets of New York in broad daylight. Commissioner, these people in Albany, uh, Hasty, who I've met, and he seems like a very decent person, and cousins I've never met from the state senate, don't they realize what the heck is going on? Uh, I wish I had an answer to that, uh, John. That, uh, it's, again, it's their constituency the black and the brown uh, uh, people in this city that are being murdered, are being shot, are being raped. Uh, uh, It's uh, impacting uh, the the white community, not in a significant way other than the fear that it's spreading, but it is uh, impacting their communities. And uh, those communities suffer enough. You've just been talking about the milk crisis, the gas crisis, the cost of living crisis. And on top of that, they have the impact of the, uh, uh, the crime crisis that's basically impacting on the quality of life. You talked about our supermarkets closing, drugstores closing, that they have to travel miles uh, on public transportation to uh, try and get food, to get prescriptions, and at the same time put themselves at great risk for random shootings on the streets. Along now, those lines, Commissioner Vito Vasella, there was a report out last week about the arrests, about, I think it was about 4,456 4, arrests for illegal firearms possessions. And how many are still open cases? Almost 2,000, about 44% are open cases. That means they were arrested, still released on the streets. Uh, how many pled down? I think of those 4,400-plus, one went to trial with conviction, three were acquitted. Can you give the folks a little flavor of what all that means? 
Well, you had John Miller, Deputy Commissioner, on your show last week, and John uh, was very eloquent describing uh, this situation, the number of people arrested for gun-related crimes, and the number of trials that were held in the city of New York last year, which I think was like 12. Uh, so the reality is that most of these gun cases end up being pled down, meaning that they plead to lesser charges so the district attorneys can just literally get them off their uh, books. And as a result, we have these characters roaming around for months, if not years, waiting to plea bargain, not even go to trial, plea bargain. And when they plea bargain, they oftentimes plead to a lesser charge than what they should be facing. So when they're arrested again, and a significant number of them are arrested again, very shortly thereafter, their records don't show the serious crime from the last time. They show the plea bargain crime. So we have created this vicious cycle where we have a court system that doesn't function, district attorneys that are forced to basically plea bargain, and police that are rearresting these people over and over and over again. When you think of the difficulty or the chances of actually arresting somebody for a crime, uh, they are relatively small, the success rate of arresting people for crime. So the vast majority of these people are committing many crimes that they never get arrested for, on top of those ones that they do get arrested for. So uh, take the reported crime rate and multiply it, you have the actual amount of crimes occurring in this city and in this country. And Bill, it's getting worse. Bill, it's Tony Carbonetti. I, I say all the time, when you were first police commissioner and the district attorneys were actually enforcing the gun laws as your police department arrested people, they were going to jail for up to a year at a time. Uh, now, like you just said, everything gets pleaded out. No one has a fear to carry their gun. Just keep That's taking your gun outside. And a lot of them are carrying guns because there's so much violence that uh, they, they are actually carrying them for self-defense to try and protect themselves. So we have that compounding problem. And then in the midst of all this, we have the insanity of closing Rikers and the new jails that they want to build. They're only going to be able to house about 4,000 people, if that many. Uh, and when we have a, an average population right now with a growing crime problem of six or 7,000 at Rikers, so there's not going to be a place to put these characters in about four or five years when we finally get these new jails built. No, the, uh, the insanity, it's just, it just it drives you crazy. And the, the, the irony of this is to be fixed so easily. Punish people for the offenses they commit. In other words, basically go back to the system that we had before. And this idea of the uh, mass incarceration, uh, I'm sorry, 80% of the people doing time up in uh, state prison in our state prisons in this state, are there for violent crime. There is nobody serving time on Rikers Island for fair evasion. Nobody. They're there because of multiple offenses. A significant number of them out there for domestic violence. And one of the reasons they want to have local jails is so the families can visit them in jail. Well, they want the family visiting the guy that just beat the hell out of them. So that's the, that's the insanity of the systems that we have. And, and no, Commissioner, it's uh, Judge Richard Warmberg, and the problem is you can't give the services that you need in the local communities, the mental health, the drug addiction, you need the medical attention, the dental care. You have to have a centralized place where you can give all the services. And who wants these people in stable communities because you destabilize and you threaten the safety of the people in those communities? Rikers should survive, it should be cleaned up, and it should be used effectively. Well, unfortunately, I think that uh, boat has sailed. If I understand it, by law, they're going to have to close it by 2027. And in the meantime, uh, they started building at least one of the new jails, uh, two of them, uh, including two gardens, I think it is. Uh, and anybody that works in the prison system will tell you that high-rise jails are the most inefficient, ineffective, and most costly. And what are we building in New York? The most inefficient, ineffective, and most costly jails in America. In, in, in your local neighborhood, uh, Commissioner. In your local neighborhood, uh, they, they basically, uh, not as if they don't have enough crime, you're going to bring more crime to the neighborhood. Thank you. Commissioner Bratton, thank you for everything you've done for our community and continue to speak out for our community. And, and uh, we'll talk to you again real soon. I just wish I had more solutions, John. Thank you, Commissioner. Right now on the line, we have with us uh, General David Petraeus, who will give us an update about what's going on overseas. Hello, General. Hi, how are you? Well, we, uh, we we are wondering. I mean, the war is still going on. Uh, There's the stories around that uh, the Ukrainians have destroyed uh, uh, a third of the Russian uh, army that was sent in to invade. Tell us what the truth is. What's where? What do you hear? 
Well, clearly what Ukraine has done uh, once again in recent weeks, actually it bore out what I think I told you the last time I was on, which was watch for the Ukrainians to see if they can conduct a counteroffense, particularly in the east around Kharkiv. They have done that. So they have now won the Battle of Kharkiv. That's the second largest city in Ukraine and very close to the Russian border. So it's quite significant. So you add that to the Battle of Kiev, which they won, and two other northern cities in Ukraine as well. That said, uh, the Russians have been able to completely control now Mariupol. Uh, I'm glad to see the heroic, incredible, resourceful, resilient, and determined defenders of that enormous steel complex in Mariupol, the port city and the southeast part of Ukraine. Um, in a sense, they, they surrendered, but they've fought for so many more weeks than anyone thought they could even survive. They became the Alamo of Ukraine, and they, touch wood, will be exchanged for Russian prisoners at some point uh, in the weeks ahead, one hopes. Uh, they certainly deserve that. And I hope that under the terms of what they do, and after they've had a break, they can survive to fight another day. They are truly inspirational in what they've done. And again, I think good not to require them to fight literally to the last man. Um, elsewhere in the east, southeast, and south, you see Russia trying slowly to expand the areas that they control very costly in doing so. You quoted correctly the Ministry of Defense report from the UK that says about a third of the forces that have been committed are no longer uh, capable of carrying on. Uh, they have struggled, the Russians have, to replace their personnel and material losses, but they do find uh, additional individuals to shove into the ranks. <clears throat> not the most effective of organizations. And meanwhile, of course, the Ukrainians are benefiting enormously from this avalanche of weapons, ammunition, other military supplies being provided to them by the U.S., the U.K., and other NATO nations. And those are tipping the scales in favor of Ukraine in some of the areas. But once again, John, we're in a pivotal period. And the weeks ahead will tell us whether Ukraine can continue the counteroffensive beyond Kharkiv in the east and then perhaps shift it to the southeast and cut this main supply line between a key Russian hub of Belgorod uh, and the front line so that they can cut the supply lines that connect that hub with the Russian forces that are fighting in the east and whether they can stop the Russian forces in the southeast in a critical battle uh, and then keep pressure on them in the south. The Russians are trying to incorporate these areas. They're at some point may annex them into the Russian Republic. They could even say, okay, this is all part of Russia now. If you attack us, we might resort to our other military capabilities, rattling the nuclear saber again. So Ukraine has to push as quickly as they can before the Russians can harden what are the new front lines of this war? And I think the next few weeks will tell us uh, how successfully the Ukrainians will be in that effort, noting how incredibly impressive they have been, of course, until this time. Understood. And this whole game now being played between uh, uh, Finland and uh, what is yes. it? Sweden. 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 <clears throat> and, and now Turkey comes out and says, well, I might veto the whole thing unless you. But did he, did he actually say, if unless you pay us? No, Erdogan wants something. Uh, the question course. is what? Yeah. How much should we pay Ur well, Ur Turkey Kurds, uh, to fly over in the Iraq in the uh, Iraq uh, problem? General, this is yeah, Pete King. You know, it's, it's always deja vu. How are you, Congressman? I'm, I'm doing great, General. How are you? It's great to talk with you always. Uh, this okay. almost goes back to 2003 when didn't Turkey it block uh, you know, troops coming in from the north and Iraq, which really slowed they us did. down. They did. Yeah, no, that's why the 801st Airborne Division, which I was privileged to command at that time, and which you visited later on when we were in Mosul, that's yes. why we ended up in the north instead of the unit that was supposed to come through Turkey and down from the north. They well, couldn't make it that far when they came in from the south. And Turkey but would allow us to land. This is resolvable. Yep. I think this is resolvable. Turkey has it's a, matter a of money. somewhat legitimate issue here. We need yeah. to keep in mind that an organization that we have designated as a terrorist organization, the PKK, Turkish Kurd Extremists, 
um, are allowed in some other countries, including some NATO countries, uh, to exist, and in some cases to fundraise. And this does go on uh, in Finland and I believe also in Sweden. And so I think it is not out extraordinary for Turkey to ask that they address this issue, which is very important to Turkey. At the end of the day, I don't think Turkey is going to – General, how significant is it that Sweden and Finland, I mean, two, uh, if not neutral, certainly you know, non-belligerent countries, how, how does that change the power structure, or the balance of power? Well, it, it, it's very, very significant. Geostrategically, keep in mind that when you add Finland and Sweden, both of whom have very modern forces, by the way, and both of whom served in either Bosnia or Kosovo or both, and, in fact, I had their forces under my command when I was privileged to command in Afghanistan. Both of them were there. Very interoperable with NATO already. They'll pay their 2% of GDP on defense and so forth. Keep in mind, when you add them, when you look at the map, all of a sudden, this literally surrounds the Baltic with uh, the sea, with uh, NATO countries. And it also adds two very important countries to the effort for influence in the Arctic. And that's going to be one of the key areas uh, the decades that lie ahead as global warming brings about further melting of the Arctic, further access to it in various ways, including maybe at some point actually a all-year-round uh, maritime route there as well. General, so adding these two countries is very, very significant, and it will be very seamless. It'll be, they have, again, equipment that is very much at NATO standards, as is their uh, per, their doctrine and their professional expertise. We have one last question before we have to take a break. Sure. Uh, Vito Fasella, the borough president. Uh, General, just to, to follow up on Peter's question about the importance of Finland and Sweden, was this a misplay once again by Putin in not anticipating oh, absolutely. That Sweden Flint, and now almost by default it's going to happen? Absolutely. He And all he has to do to find out who he should blame is look in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Uh, he set out to make Russia great again, and what he has really done is make NATO great again and even greater with the addition of two very important countries. And, of course, he's really in a way made the U.S. great again. Um, you know, we had we pulled out of Afghanistan, a decision that we, many of us questioned. The way we did it uh, was not uh, particularly auspicious, and we really didn't consult adequately with our NATO partners. Here we are leading uh, NATO in the Western world in opposing a very, very clear-cut issue of an autocracy or a kleptocracy invading <clears throat> a neighboring country that is a democracy. General David Petraeus, thank you so much, and God bless you, and thank you for everything you've done for our country and continue Always to speak out. Thank, thank you, General. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. Welcome back to the John Katzmatidis Cats at Night show. On the line for us right now, we have Paul Lunsis, and he's an expert when it comes to the market, inflation, and finances. How are you, sir? I'm great. And, How are and he's you? a good friend of, uh, of Warren Buffett. Oh. I yeah. understand Warren Buffett. Uh, uh, got rid of his Wells Fargo stock and bought Citibank stock. Does that show a sign of confidence in Citibank? It sure does, John. Um, yeah, it sure does. I think it surprised a lot of people. Wow. Yep. I have a Meanwhile, the market went down 1,200 points today. Uh, Paul Luntz what the heck is going on? You know, John, last week on Friday, it's really a lot of it's being driven by the, the interest rate increases and the inflation concerns. And last Friday, Powell said – that getting inflation under control won't be easy. And then James Bullard, a member of the board, the voting, a voting member who's been pretty hawkish, he thought they should have started raising rates a while back. He made some comments. And then today in the Wall Street Journal, Powell basically said he's going to back interest rate increases until prices start falling back toward a healthy level. And then he chimed in and said, 
If that involves moving past broadly understood levels of neutral, we won't hesitate to do that. So you, you, those comments really threw some fear into the market. Rising interest rates, is it going to slow down the economy that we're going to suffer the R word or recession? Um, it's really scaring people. Global GDP forecasts and growth are coming down domestically as well as globally. Um, so people are really getting nervous and getting concerned. What's going to happen? And then today, well, yesterday it started with Walmart. They missed their earnings by 18 cents. It scared everyone. The stock went down 8, 9, 10, 12%, and another 7 today. And then another earnings miss today, a big one from Target. Target stock was down 25%. So people are trading down. As you constantly discuss, John, oil and the self-inflicted oil issue that we have, people are spending a lot more for gas and food and other Paul, items. Paul, so they're trading I said down. This, I said this on CNBC yesterday and Fox Business the day before. Oh, we can get rid of inflation by just by just opening up North America for oil. Instead of uh, President Biden has made North America oil the enemy. He's declared war on them and we don't have to raise interest rates if we, we opened up North America's oil. There's no question about it, John. With the shale oil and all the other things we have going, the Keystone Pipeline that could have been, could have been implemented, um, it's really quite tragic that we're not doing anything on that. It's really, but it's really harming, John, the, the middle and lower classes the most. And they're really being terribly impacted. And it's unfortunate because it doesn't have to be that way. And the market, John, all, all over, Dow was down three and a half. NASDAQ was down almost, you know, four and three quarters. The Russell 2000 down three and a half. I mean, it's broad-based. And I don't see, John, how this is going to stop. Um, you know, the Fed really is going to do the 50 basis points they claim in June and 50 in July. Well, they're um, threatening so it, to do it. But if the economy keeps taking a dive, you never know what's going to happen. And what about real estate? Well, Real estate is going to take a dive if you have 5.5% interest rates. And don't forget, though, in December of 2018, now we didn't have inflation 40 years, the worst inflation in 40 years, but in December of 18, they had raised the Fed funds rate to 2.5, and then the market went down 20%, and they immediately started lowering them. So that's a good point, John. Paul, yeah, Paul, this is Vito for so just uh, and Cisco missed its revenue earnings too, right? Dropped more than four percent today on yep. uh, instead of being positive five point seven percent thereabouts, it's in the negative. So it was just one more telltale sign. Hmm. But just an ordinary, you know, the hardworking folks out there have been saving for the last twenty, thirty years. Their IRAs, their four hundred one ks, which now may be a three hundred one k since the reduction. What's been the average hit, say, in the last not just this year, but for the last year and a half or so? Well, don't forget, Vito, a lot of stock prices after March and April, May and June of 2020, things really got hit. The market was down 33%. Things came back with a vengeance. And I think, I think the multiples and the valuations really have gotten way ahead of themselves, and now it's starting to come back. And what happens often in the market, it overshoots on the upside, which it has done, and it often overshoots on the downside. But clearly – Clearly, Vito, a lot of people have been hurt with their equity holdings. But another important point, because the Fed has kept rates so low so long, think about people that want to be more conservative. There's almost no way to make money in fixed income. But we, um, you know, treasuries and corporates, you know, the returns have been non-existent. Paul, we uh, thank you for coming on and on the line. I understand we have <clears throat> Hank, Hank Shenkoff. He's a political analyst, especially when it comes to New York politics. Hank, how are you, sir? Thanks. How are you doing? Good. So tell us about the political landscape here in New York. Uh, is it going to be a, a sweep for the Republicans? Could we see another red wave like we saw in Long Island? Um, I think there there has every potential to be a red wave. People are disgusted and they're, they're disgusted with the crime. And uh, they just don't they just think things are out of control. The reapportionment uh, is not looking very that makes the Democrats look awfully silly. They're backbiting in public. Uh, what you're seeing is uh, the true kind of politics that people really don't want to be told about, but they know exists, which is opportunity tends to wipe out idealism. Hank, this it's is Pete King, and I'm here with Vito Fisella, yeah. with two former congressmen. We're looking closely at the Natalie Maloney race. What's going to happen there? I think Maloney, I think it's, uh, you, you have to make Maloney the favorite today because more of that district is in Maloney's uh, area of, of, uh, of operation. 
Uh, Nadler has less of it. He's counting on a ba- more in- more intensive turnout in what is really his home base, which is the heaviest voting AD in the country, probably assembly district in the country. But I'm not sure that works that way this time. I'm not sure that works that way this time. Jerry's been around a long time. She's much more vital, frankly. Yeah, Hank, it's uh, it's Richard Weinberg. And what about the governor's race? What do you think is going to happen there? I used to think that the you talk about the primary, or the general, Richard. I'm talking about both. Take one at a time. I think I think Governor Hochul wins the primary, and I think that in the fall it's 50-50. I think that uh, if the nominee is the is Congressman Zeldin, that he can actually win this. I've said this for quite some time. Long Island's a wipeout. Overall, my bet today is 50-50 on the governor's race. The Republicans pick up six to eight in the state Senate. Assembly not clear yet, but uh, you're going to see Republicans win seats in places that Democrats uh, generally win and Republicans are not heard of. Very, very interesting there. So and how- what about de Blasio? I'm sorry. Go de Blasio, he, there's, there's talk he might be running in the newly drawn uh, 10th congressional district. I think he can win. Why? There are enough woke people in the southern portion of that um, in southern portion of Manhattan who would feel good about him. His strength is like the brownstone belt. Generally, they don't know well, he's an idiot. You know, well, they they they're not like going. They're going to vote. Uh, they're going to vote. He's Let's be civilized, Tony. I, I, I am being civilized. The people in that district don't know how horrible of a mayor he was. They live through it. Well, no, hold on, hold on. They're going to talk about things that he's going to talk about things that work for Democrats, which are choice and gun control. And that's what he'll talk about and keep saying it. And it'll work. He knows he doesn't know how to run a city. He doesn't know how to do much, but he doesn't know how to be a candidate. Cho- choice doesn't, doesn't change one bit in New York City, no matter what Roe v. Wade does. And uh-huh. gun control, he was the worst mayor because he just left the, left the guns on the streets. No, one, no one's arguing with you about it. I'm telling you how political campaigns work, not what reality is. That's true. <laughs> that's true. Let's not confuse Let's not confuse the issue. I think Hank's right. point is exactly right. There's reality in this politics. Oh, we don't confuse the issue with that. the. We don't confuse the issue with the facts in politics. No, Hank, don't make it. Don't get confused. Yeah, it's you know, very complicated. Hank, this is Vito Fasola. Good to hear your voice. Um, Vito, you're a good man. Always good to hear your voice. Thank you. Likewise, appreciate that. Is there one? Back to the the governor's race, right? Do you think there's sure. one or two sort of major issues that can tip the scales in, in favor of, of Lee Zeldin? I think crime is is the issue, particularly on Long Island. Half of Westchester, probably 30% of Queens and about 25% of Brooklyn. That's reality. Okay, number one. Number two, um, the general sense that Washington's out of order and there's chaotic, chaotic activity and people will pay the price at home. That's how it goes. Hank Shankoff, thank you so much for coming on. We're out of time, and uh, we're playing the theme song, Truth, Truth Justice, Justice, and, and the, the American, American Way. way. <laughs> so says Superman. <laughs> and, and, and Thank you. And uh, Judge Weinberg, thank you. Congressman King. Thank you. Chief, Chief, uh, Tony thank Carbonetti, uh, Borough President Vito Fasella. Thank you, Jim. And my sidekick, Lydia from Serrani and... God bless New York and God bless America. And and uh, somebody better light a candle in church to, uh, for, for our whole society. Thank you so much. Uh, God bless. <laughs>